All right. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John. You should know that by now. We're into week six, and so you're going to want your Bibles open. We're going to read a long chunk, uh, the first half of John chapter three. It's uh, for those of you who have been in the church any length of time, it's probably a familiar story. And as we read it, if, even if you haven't been in church a long time, there's a verse in the middle that I would almost be convinced that everyone will have seen or heard because uh, you see it even today at sporting events, John 3.16. So we're in the first half of the Gospel of John. So over the course of my lifetime, I have had the opportunity to attend and or officiate at literally dozens of funerals and or memorial services. Funerals for all types of situations, uh, older people and children, accidental deaths, deaths after a long drawn out illness like cancer or Alzheimer's, suicides. All kinds of deaths, believers in Christ and those who claimed not to believe in Christ or even from other world religions on occasion have been invited to do those funerals. What's interesting to me in attending all these funerals over the years that at every single funeral, young, old, people of faith or not of faith, there is a common thread that runs through these memorial services. Somewhere in the course of that service, you will hear someone refer to the fact that this person has gone to a better place. That as they rest in peace, as their suffering is over, that they have gone on to something better. Now, if they're Christians, we will often talk about the, the rock-solid faith and trust that we have in Jesus Christ, that by believing and faith in him, to be absent from the body is literally to be present with the Lord, and we rejoice in that. But whether they're Christians or not, I always hear this line, they've gone to a better place. I have never once, never once, in dozens of funerals, heard someone stand up at the front and say, yeah, that person went to hell. Never once, never once have I heard anybody say they've gone to a worse place. It's always they've gone to a better place. Very, very interesting because is that true? So at the end of the gospel of John, John gives us his thesis statement. And he says, the reason that I wrote this book, the reason I gave you all of these signs that are included are, 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 is this reason. They are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And the implication hidden in that verse is that if you don't believe, then there is no life. If by believing in Jesus, you come to life, then not believing in Jesus by implication would be that you do not have life. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that most of the world living around us is living a lot like this guy, and I'll throw a picture up on the screen for you to look at him, looking alive, but not alive at all, very much dead. Uh, I, I'm sure most of you will have never heard of Jeremy Bentham. He lived back in the 1800s. Uh, he was one of the founders of the University College of London in 1830. He was a philosopher, and he is called the father of utilitarianism. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, he gave us the definition. Utilitarianism is this. It is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong. So his philosophy was, how do you determine good and evil? How do you determine right and wrong? It's very simple. The greatest pleasure for the greatest number of people, the greatest amount of the time, that is what right is. That is what good good is. So we avoid pain and we embrace pleasure at all ends, utilitarianism. 
So when he died, or before he died actually, in his will, he instructed his executor that when I pass, I want you to take my skeleton and my skull and I want you to be preserved, I want you to preserve my body, dress it in one of my fine suits, and I want you to place it in some form of case. And he actually had this case designed, the wooden case that you see. And then in the future, if my friends or my followers want to discuss my philosophies, they can roll me into the room and I can take part. And so Jeremy Bentham has sat in that wooden case for 150 years. And just in 2020, he got an update to that beautiful glass case. And he sits in the student lounge of the University College of London still to this day. The Bible says that we all live our lives among the walking dead. People who are very much alive physically but spiritually, they're dead. And they're headed for a Christless eternity. That is what the Bible says. And you're like, where are you headed, Pastor Mark? Well, our next text is one of the clearest and actually most dogmatic declarations about salvation and about heaven and hell. And as we read this text, it's a long text, but I want you to listen for dogmatic words. I want you to listen for the words unless and cannot and must. So you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. Chapter three of John's gospel. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who de descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. All right, we're gonna look at four things. We are gonna see <clears throat> what cannot be done, 
what must be done, how it gets done, and then we're going to talk about a paradox and a motivation. What can't be done, what must be done, how it gets done, and then a paradox. The big idea in the text, obviously, is that central theme, you must be born again. That if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So two characters in a conversation, Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, Just a comment about Nicodemus. John tells us that he is a Pharisee, that he is of the ruling class of the Pharisees. Uh, He is a religious one. He is a powerful one. He's an influential one. Uh, we, We can pick up from John 7 and John 19 later, he was also a wealthy one. So he's a man of influence. Now, John could have just as easy said a guy named Nick came to visit Jesus. But he wanted us to know that he was a religious leader, that he was a Pharisee, and that is critical. That is important. Because what it tells us simply is this, that even religious people need to meet Jesus. Even very religious people still need to meet Jesus. The first point that we want to take note of is what Jesus says cannot be done. Nick comes to Jesus. Hey, we've been talking about you. Maybe some of the other Pharisees. You couldn't do what you do unless you come from God. And Jesus, being the great poker player that he is, says, I will see your unless with another unless, and I'll up you a couple cannots. (laughs) You say, I can't do these things unless I'm from God? Well, I'll tell you this. You cannot see the kingdom unless you're born again. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the Spirit. There's that big idea. You must be born again. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the term born again uh, in the popular media, particularly if you listen to anything from coming from the U.S. side of the border, you will likely hear the term born again now and then in the media. It went mainstream about 50 years ago when two very prominent politicians claimed this title. So Chuck Colson was part of Nixon's Watergate scandal, and he went to prison. And in prison, he met Jesus, and then he writes a book called Born Again. And because he was a very famous politician writing a book, it sold over two million copies. And right around the same time, in the mid-70s, a guy named Jimmy Carter is running for president. And Jimmy Carter, for the very first time in U.S. history, claimed to be a born-again Christian. He used that title. Not just an evangelical, not a charismatic, not a Catholic, not a Protestant, none of those titles. Yes, I'm a Christian, but he added that phrase, I'm a born-again Christian, and it hit the mainstream. And you will still hear it today in the the media, and usually when you hear the phrase born-again Christian, it's said with a sneer, or it's said in a little bit of a derogatory type way. Uh, It's used to separate us from evangelicals and Christians and charismatics. There's a particular slice of Christians, those born-againers. Well, John 3 is where we get that term from. Jesus says it twice, unless you're born again, you cannot see or you cannot enter the kingdom. And the kingdom, uh, when Nicodemus heard that, would think of the future hope of Israel. The kingdom, according to the Old Testament, was a day when the Messiah would rule and reign. It was a a future hope. It was post-resurrection. The kingdom is yet to come. And Jesus is saying, in other words, you won't get into that future hope, or what we might call the coming kingdom of God, or heaven. You won't get into the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. And so it takes us to that second statement, 
what cannot be done, but now what must be done. And in verse 7, he says, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. A dogmatic statement, you must be. You cannot get in unless, and you must be born again. And then some interesting dialogue, uh, almost humorous in a bit, because Nicodemus is an older guy, and he's like, how do you get born again? Uh, You can't possibly go back into your mother's womb. I can't roll back the clock of time. I can't start my life over. What do you mean, Jesus? And, And Jesus is sort of like, don't be silly, Nick. I'm not talking about physical birth. You know all about physical birth. And in fact, he says it here, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. We understand very well that flesh gives birth to flesh. Uh, From the very beginning of time, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And it is the one command that humans have followed. We know how to make babies. Flesh gives birth to flesh and the spirit births the spirit. Now, John had started this thought. If you remember the first weekend, I said those first 18 verses in John 1, that introduction, he introduced many of the themes that come up throughout the book. And he introduced this theme back in chapter 1 when he said, to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Chapter 1, verse 11. The right to become the children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's introduced back in chapter one. And now in chapter three, he uses the word born eight times and three key phrases in verse three, verse five, and verse seven. Unless you're born again, you must be born again by water and the spirit. And Jesus isn't saying two different things there. He's not saying you gotta be born again. And you got to be born by water and the spirit. It's two different ways of saying the exact same thing. They are parallel statements. Uh, Now, some have looked at that statement, born of water and born of the spirit, and tried to say, what's Jesus talking about? Uh, Some would suggest that it is a picture of physical birth, the, the being born of water. He's actually referring to physical birth, that the first nine months of our existence, from conception until our natural birth, that we live in a bag of water. Well, not actually water. It's amniotic fluid. But we talk about a woman's water breaking and then the baby comes, right? So you live in water and then you're born. Some think it's a reference to physical birth. Others say, no, 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 no. It's a reference to water baptism. That you've got to be baptized in water in order to be saved. In fact, there are some denominations that will tell you that your regeneration happens when you go through the waters of baptism and that you literally cannot be saved unless you have been water baptized. And so if you haven't been water baptized, you're in great peril. But what Nicodemus likely heard was something far more simple. The familiar metaphors of water and the spirit, because he was a scribe, he was a Pharisee, he was a student of the Old Testament. And Nicodemus would have known that uniquely linked all the way through the Old Testament are these metaphors of water and the spirit. That God uses these word pictures in a unique way among God's people and and, and saying to them, I want to refresh you. I want to give you life. I want to give you renewal. I want to give you water to sustain you. And and, and not just physical water that your, your body needs water to live on, but I will give you spiritual water. It's all the way through the Old Testament. One of the, one of the most famous and, and beloved texts is in Isaiah. I will do a new thing among you and there will be streams in the desert. You remember that text? He's not so much literally saying there's going to be literal water running through the desert, although there's a promise of that as well. 
But in the desert seasons of your life, I am going to give you the life-giving streams of the Spirit that you will drink, that you will be refreshed, that you'll be renewed. Water to sustain you and the work of the Spirit. Additionally, in the Old Testament, you will know this, there is the imagery of washing with water to cleanse and to purify. So almost everything in the Old Testament that needed to be cleansed was symbolically dipped in water. Uh, remember a couple weeks ago, uh, the wedding at Canaan and Jesus turning water into wine and it was in the ceremonial jars, the, the, the jars that were there for the ceremonial washings. And, and it was not that people came in and literally took an entire bath in those jars, just a little pouring of water symbolically to represent the cleansing and the purifying of all sin and impurity. One of the clearest references that ties the two together is Ezekiel 36. Maybe Nicodemus remembered this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. So you see the link of both those. And this is so common throughout the Old Testament that water and the spirit are always linked together or, or often linked together. So in one sense, you could say water and the spirit are simultaneously the same thing. They both represent the life-giving source. Like water to our physical body, so too we need the spirituality that comes from the spirit of God. Okay, back to the text. Nick, the only way you're going to see the kingdom of God is if your life is radically altered by the water of life plunged into the spirit of Christ. Now, for those of you who heard me preaching on this text, because there were several of us preaching that particular weekend, but do you remember when I asked you, are you a cucumber or a pickle? And the baptism of the spirit that that representative of not just being dipped, but literally being submerged in that brine and that that cucumber is literally transformed by its baptism, by its immersion in the Spirit. And, and that's what Jesus is saying to, to Nicodemus, unless you are immersed, unless you drink deeply of the water of life. But finally in the text, you may have seen it already, there's a little bit of a mystery here. Because Nick, you need to know this, that you have no control over your physical birth, and you also have no control over your spiritual birth. The spirit is sort of like the wind. It comes and it goes, it blows. We see the effects of the wind, but we don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. If there's no wind, we don't know when the wind will blow again. You can see its effects, but spiritual birth is in the same sense like this. You don't control your physical birth and the spirit will blow when the spirit wants to blow. And so Nicodemus responds with a perfectly natural question then. How will this get done? What cannot be done, what must be done, well, how do we get it done? How do you get born again then, Jesus? How does new birth happen? Jesus' response to Nicodemus was interesting. Nick, you're a teacher. If anybody should know this, you should know this. You should know, Nick, how it gets done. Uh, let, let's just keep it really simple. Do you want to get right with God, Nicodemus? You need to look to the Son of Man and believe in his name. That's what you need to do. You need to believe on him. It's just like when Moses, remember that story, Nick? Remember in the wilderness 
When the children of God rebelled against God and God's judgment came down on them and poisonous snakes began to come out of the wilderness and bite them and they were dying from the venom and they cried out to God. Now, in Numbers 21, the story is told like this. And so the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. Then when, any was bitten by, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Do you remember that story, Nick? What's interesting to me, uh, you take note of, you go to the doctor's office these days, what's the symbol that our doctors use? It's a snake on a pole, right? Jesus says, Nick, do you remember that story? All those people had to do was look in faith to that bronze serpent and getting their eyes set on it, and in the act of faith, they were healed. And it's just as simple with the Son of God. You look to him, and you live. So how is one born again? Nick, you got to get your eyes on the Son of Man. Lift your eyes to the Son of Man, Nick. Look to him and believe. Now, we got to stop there, because when Jesus said that phrase, get your eyes on the Son of Man, it would have been like a boom lightning strike in Nicodemus' mind. Not so much in our mind, because we have gotten so used to this phrase, son of man. It was Jesus' number one title for himself. All the way through the Gospels, he identifies as the son of man. Many people just say, well, it refers to his humanity. He was the son of God, his divinity. He was the son of man. That's his humanity. Those two are married together, the perfect man, the perfect God. Yes and amen, but there's something more. Because there was a vision given to Daniel, a prophetic vision back in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. And in that vision, he says this, I saw in this vision one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Now, the Ancient of Days in this context is God the Father in all of his glory. Daniel is in the throne room. He's in this vision with the, the, the Lord, the Ancient of Days. And then he sees this vision of one like a son of man. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so the Old Testament God-fearing Jew would look at that text and go, there is coming a day when one called the Son of Man is going to come and his kingdom will never end. He will rule and reign and all peoples and all languages and all nations. And so the God-fearing Jew was looking forward to the day when the Son of Man would be revealed by the Ancient of Days. And now Jesus is like, boom, the Son of Man is right in front of you. The Son of Man, Nick, is going to be lifted up. And when you look at the crucified Christ... Dying in your place, dying not for his sin, but for your sin. When you look to the Son of Man on the cross, you will be saved. And John's gospel is incredibly repetitive. He comes back to themes over and over and over again through the 21 chapters. And this one comes up several times, and I'm just going to give you a glimpse. We'll get back to all of these. But in John 6, he says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son, and believes would have eternal life. Get your eyes on the Son. John 8, 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, 
then you will know that I am he. So there's gonna be something happening at the crucifixion when Jesus is lifted up, when he is hung on that cross, that suddenly in that moment, people are gonna understand, oh my goodness, he was indeed the son of man. And then in chapter 12, he says, and when I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this, to show by what kind of death he was going to die, Jesus prophesying his own crucifixion, that he would be lifted up on the cross at Calvary. So what cannot be done? You can't enter the kingdom if you're spiritually dead. What must be done is you must be born again. And how is that done? Well, it's done by looking to the Son, looking to the crucified Christ in faith and in trust. So keep it very simple. You want to be born again? Believe in Jesus. You want to be born again? Believe in Jesus. And so today in this room, I would ask you the question, you want to be saved? Look to Jesus. That's what the text says. You want salvation full and free? Simply look to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Period. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. 90% of North Americans say they believe in God and it makes absolutely no difference in their lives. So what kind of belief is Jesus actually talking about? When he says all you need to do is believe and you'll be saved. Well, we get a little bit of a hint. Look back uh, to last week's text and you'll remember near the end, after the cleansing of the temple, in John 2.23, it says, all of these people came after Jesus. They saw the signs that he has done and many believed in him. Do you remember that? But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. That word entrust himself is literally the same word. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. And it says because Jesus knew what was in their heart. He knew that this was an empty profession of faith. They just saw the signs and wonders. They showed up for the free food. They saw all the miracles. The, the crowds were gathering. He, it was a popularity contest and everybody wanted in. Yeah, I believe in him. And then three years later, they're yelling, crucify, crucify. That profession did not end up in their persevering in the faith. The book of James challenges us that your faith is only proven true by how you live and how you believe and how you live it out in the practical workings of day-to-day -day life. James 2 says this, you believe that God is one, well, you do well. But listen to this, even the demons believe and shudder. So if even Satan and the demons believe, there's gotta be something different about intellectual assent, I believe and a total life surrender, I believe. I believe in my head or I believe with my life. It's the difference between giving Jesus a nod and giving him your life. Entrusting your very life to him. So, I'll throw an old picture on the screen. 1859, I was just born. Charles Blondin became the first person in human history to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. With no safety net and no harness, he walked across and he walked back again and the world was amazed. But he wasn't done. Because over the next decades of his life, he would cross Niagara Falls over 300 times on that tightrope. And he was famous for his antics. 
He would take a chair to the middle and sit balanced on the back legs on that chair. He would take musical instruments and sit in the middle and play music in the middle. On one occasion, he literally took a little potbelly stove to the middle, lit a fire, cooked an omelet, and ate an omelet in the middle. He rolled a wheelbarrow across that tightrope. And he was constantly trying to get somebody to go across the rope with him, and there were no takers. And he would say to them, don't you believe? Of course we believe. We've seen you crisscross it dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. We believe, we know you can cross that rope, but I'm not getting on your back. Until finally he talked his manager in, and maybe he told him he'd get fired if he didn't jump on his back. But his manager finally got on his back and piggyback, he carried Harry Colcord across. And he told him this, He said, look up, Harry, look up. Don't look down. You are no longer Colcord, you are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself because if you do, we will both go to our death. You see, the same is true for our faith in Jesus Christ. If we're going to enter into the kingdom of God, we have to become one with Jesus. Body, soul, and mind. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And our lives in turn, body, soul, mind, and spirit must be united to Jesus Christ. So John goes on and he gives this commentary. The next five verses, and we'll just very briefly look at the commentary from 16 on. He basically says, let me just summarize the conversation that's just taken place. Verse 16, God so loved, God gave, and God sent his son. That's what it's all about. And he sent his son, verse 17, not to condemn the world, but to rescue the world. That's why God sent his son. And verse 18 makes it very, very clear. The world was already condemned. Jesus Christ came into a world already condemned. He did not come to condemn. He came to rescue us out of this condemned world. We stand under the curse of sin and death, and so God intervenes. So believe on him and be saved, or disbelieve and perish. But then he goes on to say, but look, this is the tragedy. This is the tragedy. Remember what I told you back in chapter 1? Remember at the start? Remember how I opened this book, John is saying? I told you at the beginning, the true light, referring to Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And now in chapter 3, verse 19, he basically says the same thing. The light has come into the world, but people run for the darkness. What he is saying here is that people actually see, but they don't want to see. And they hear, but they don't want to hear. They have already made up their mind over the years previous. They have come to understand something, and they've made up their mind to say, I do not believe this. I choose to walk away from it. I will not step into the light. I prefer the darkness. Thank you very much. And then he summarizes it in verse 21, when he says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, that's an interesting verse. 
Because basically what it says is whoever does what is true, whoever believes and acts on it and comes into the light, as soon as you step into the light, you look back over your shoulder and you realize it was all done by God. You step into the light, you believe, you place your faith, and you look back and you're like, all these works that I've just accomplished in believing were done by God working in and through me. And it brings us to the paradox and the motivation of this text. John 3.16 is probably the best known verse of the entire Bible, at least in North America. If you've watched any professional sporting events on TV, almost inevitably you will see that guy in the stands with John 3.16. And I wonder how many people have wondered what that verse is and have gone to look it up. And I wonder when we get to heaven, how many people are going to go, you know how I came to faith in Jesus? I was watching hockey. I was watching baseball. I was walking basketball. I was watching football. And I saw some crazy dude with a John 3.16 sign. And I went to the scriptures and read it and I got saved. I hope and pray that that's true. It's the most famous book, the famous verse in the book. But as you read the entire chapter, you're confronted with this paradox The only way that you can come to God is by being born again. You can't get into the kingdom unless you're born again. And and make it very clear, only the spirit can give you spirit birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. But chapter 3, 14 and 15 say, no, just look to Jesus and you'll be saved. Just like Moses lifted up the snake, look to Jesus and you'll be saved. But how do I look How do I see when I'm blind? How do I look when I'm dead? And in Corinthians, Paul gave us two references. The first is to two types of people. The natural person without the Spirit of God and the spiritual person with the Spirit of God. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, their folly or foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. If the Spirit of God is not in you, then spiritual things make no sense to you. They're foolishness. In the second letter, he said in chapter 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And then he goes on to say, and yet we just keep proclaiming Jesus because, the next verse, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. In other words, the creator God back in Genesis who said, let there be light. That same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, God who said, let there be light speaks into the human heart and goes, let there be light. Turn on the light switch. Let you see, let you understand, call you from death, call you into life. I am going to bring you alive. That's what the Spirit of God does. And every time we gather as a church, in fact, I believe every time every church gathers, those two groups are represented. How many baptism stories have we heard of people who say, I grew up in the church. It took me 15, 20, maybe even 30 years. And sometimes people will say, I never heard the gospel. But then suddenly it made sense and I heard the gospel and I came to faith. And so there are men and women and boys and girls sitting in our church every weekend who have not yet come to spiritual life. There are those who have been called from death into life, who receive, who hear, who believe the gospel, who go, it makes sense. I see it. I believe it. I rejoice in it. I receive it. In fact, it's why I come because I've got to give praise to God every week, gathered with the family of God for all that he has done. Woo! And then there are others who hear the exact same 
message and walk away unchanged. Boring, makes no sense, don't see it, don't get it, don't understand it. And you see what this text points out is this paradox. The mysterious working of the Holy Spirit and the response of believing faith. And on one side of the coin is the absolute rock-solid truth that salvation is of the Lord, period. Salvation is of the Lord. No one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. We're dead in our sins, but thanks be to God, he makes us alive. But on the other side of the coin is God so loves the world, and whoever believes will be saved. But how can I be saved unless the Spirit moves in me? And there's the paradox. And there also is a motivation for us here. Because John 3.16 says, anyone who believes will be saved. And yet Jesus has just said, but you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. And he makes it painfully clear you can't birth yourself. And he'll come back to it in John 6. When he says, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. In other words, the spirit has to open your eyes. So which way is it? We dare not separate what God does not separate. And it is the two sides of the same spiritual coin. When did you believe in faith? When the spirit of God opened my eyes. And when did the spirit of God open your eyes? When I believed in faith. Wait a minute, when did you believe in faith? When the Spirit opened my eyes. When did the Spirit open your eyes? When I believed in faith. Which is it? Yes, both, amen. We dare not try to separate what the scripture does not separate. We will never respond in faith to God unless the Spirit of God gives us the ability to respond and yet we are responsible to respond in faith, amen. And if this is true, friends, and I fundamentally believe it is, then it should motivate us like never before to get on our knees in prayer. Because if we truly believe that salvation is of the Lord and that there's nothing that we can humanly do to change another person's heart and that the only chance that they have is if the Spirit of God turns the lights on, then would we not continuously pound on the doors of heaven? Because people who truly believe that salvation is of the Lord, and I need to just press pause there and go, this is what Northview Church believes. This is what our pastors, our elders, our confession of faith believe, that salvation is of the Lord. We are saved by faith, by grace, by Christ alone. It is of the Lord. Only by faith, only by grace, only by Christ. That's what we believe. And so if we believe this, then we should be the greatest prayer warriors on the planet. We should be the greatest proclaimers on the planet because faith can only come by hearing the word of God and faith can only come if it is granted to us by God. So I thought, how do I illustrate this? And I thought, you know what? It popped into my brain, a story I heard years ago about Christian parenting. And I thought, this is our answer. Christian parenting, this guy said, is like stacking kindling for a fire. Because parents, you know this, we have absolutely no guarantee that our kids will follow us in the faith, do we not? And I have seen over the years very good parents who've ended up with very bad children. And I've seen some very bad parents who God has reached into that family and pulled out godly children. There is this mystery of the Spirit's work. 
But parents, if we have no guarantee and only the Spirit of God can call our children to life, if only the Spirit of God can light the flame in their heart, then what is our part as parents? And and this friend of mine said, you know what? Our part is to prepare for the spark of the Spirit. In other words, to pile as much dry kindling on their life as I possibly can. So on my children's life, I'm going to expose them to the things of God. I'm going to fill their minds with the stories of God. I'm going to give them testimonies of the works of God in my own life. And I am first and foremost going to live a joyful, abundant, and spirit-filled life in front of them. And I am going to pray like crazy that fire falls from heaven and lights that kindling in the life of my child. And you see, here's the danger for those of us who believe salvation is of the Lord. That's what we believe. Here's the danger. The danger is we can begin to think there's nothing for us to do. So let's just sit back and relax. Let's just enjoy the ride. Because God's going to save who God's going to save who God's going to save. We got nothing to do with it. And yet you cannot read the New Testament and not see the testimony of the early church. The Apostle Paul who said, I will spend and be spent for the glory of God that I will become all things to all people so by all possible means I might save some. That I would be willing, he said, literally Paul says, I would be willing to be cursed to give up my salvation if my own people would come to faith in Christ. And so I know that every weekend when we gather that Nicodemus is with us. And I prayed through this week that there will be men and women and boys and girls that this weekend will be the weekend that you see what you have never seen before and that you will hear what you have never heard before and that your eyes would be open to the one who is lifted up for you, Jesus on the cross who went there not for his sin but for yours. Jesus who went there as a substitute to pay the penalty for all of our sins so that we could be set free and it has been my prayer that this weekend that you would be born again and that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you would have life in his name. So let me pray for you. So Jesus, you know how this works. You know that the Spirit has to do something in a human heart. And so as we think of people that we love, in fact, as we think of our own story, we know that there was that moment in time where it suddenly made sense like the light being turned on in a dark room and all of those truths that people had tried to tell us years before suddenly took root in our heart and sprung to spiritual life. And so Lord, you know the men and women, the boys and girls, the teenagers, the young adults, and even the seniors among us who have heard the gospel with physical ears but have never heard the gospel in their heart of hearts. And Father, we are crying out because we cannot change their heart. Holy Spirit, only you can open their eyes. And Lord, we are asking for these ones that we love, would you open their eyes? Would you let it make sense? Would they be able to step into belief in the Son of God who died for them? And may they, in believing in him, find life in his name. We ask this blessing for your glory, Father. And in it, we are going to have incredible joy. Amen.